wildlife and its habitat cannot speak. So we must. And we will. You're listening to the Conservation Federation of Missouri podcast. Here's Executive Director Brandon Butler. Welcome back to Conservation Federation. I'm your host, Brandon Butler. Today, I'm very excited to be with my friend Grant Woods down at his farm, The Proving Grounds, near Branson, Missouri. Brandon, great to have you here. It's great to be back. I can't say enough about the view. Looking out over the Ozarks down here, we're truly in God's country. You know, we are. And and, uh, the trees are green, but the ground is brown. We're kind of dry right now. We've been missing some of those rains you guys up in St. Louis have been getting. There was uh, three or four storms that came through, dumped about five inches, but it seems like it all comes at once. I know. The yard's flooded for a couple days, and it goes back to being brown. But if it would spread out a little bit, that would be nice, but... I can't tell you, I think it's been about four years, maybe five years since I've been down here, and I wish I got to spend more time here. There's so much to learn from you about all the habitat work that means so much to conservationists and hunters, what you've been able to accomplish here. I just think the way you name the place, the Proving Grounds, I know why, but maybe you could explain it to the people. Well, you know, it's it's very rough and rocky for those that haven't been here. We're right in the Ozarks, and it's steep. We we have about seven ridges that go up and down 400 feet, and the you know, top of the ridge is 20 yards wide, and the bottom's 20 yards wide, and the rest of it's a side slope. So it's a really tough environment. And some of my buddies kept saying, boy, if it would work there, it would work anywhere. You know, it's kind of how it come around. So we ended up calling it the Proven Grounds, and it is proven difficult at times. But it's also proven very successful. Yeah, very fun. This was an old cattle ranch and highly overgrazed and not taken care of, no inputs and everything going out. So I've enjoyed over the years watching it improve. We went the first year. I, I like to walk a lot. I'm not a go-to-the-gym guy. I walk a lot. And I, of course, the first year, many years ago, before Google Maps and everything, or at least I knew about Google Maps, I had a printed topo map. And I would, every day I was home, you know, walk a ridge or a side ridge or whatever and kind of check it off. And the first year... On 1,500 acres, I saw one deer. I saw a tail going around a cedar tree. And and now we're somewhere close to 100 deer per square mile. And that's great habitat work. And and just a lot of prescribed burning, cutting lots and lots of cedars without mercy and burning. And and I really enjoy watching those improvements. Well, I've I've enjoyed watching the entire place unfold. and, And through your media work, I've learned a lot from you. And I appreciate what you do to help guys like me learn how to take better care of our own property. But if anybody out there listening isn't familiar with who Dr. Grant Woods is, he's a leading deer biologist in the country. And he's also a media member in the sense of having a really in-depth look at how to manage property and, and hunt through his video series, Growing Deer TV. I guess we probably should go back to the beginning a little bit though, and, and tell people how this all came to be. Well, you know, I'm a native Missourian, actually raised just west of Republic, Missouri, west of Springfield, those that don't know Republic. And I just had, I guess, a God-built-in love of deer, even before they restocked deer in that county, Greene County, Missouri. And one day I was on my little trap line, quote-unquote. I had box traps for rabbits, live traps for rabbits. And checking my trap line, I found a female fawn that had been poached, shot in the head in, in one of our little fields. And ever since then, I've disliked poachers and loved, loved deer. And so I went to school and just kept going and ended up being a deer biologist with research emphasis. And and so I was, I didn't really like the university systems, to be honest. And I was jetting all over America, you know, helping people research projects and what have you. And, and I come home from work one day, a flight back from wherever I'd been, and sitting in the floor, my infant daughter, who's now in college, and she said, as soon as the phone rang, she said, Daddy. And I realized I traveled so much, she she knew me through a phone. I said, man, this has got to change. I don't want to be a family like that. So started started uh, publishing more and eventually doing Growing Deer, just sharing information, hoping people would support it. And that's how Growing Deer started. And so we make a weekly web show. We have for almost 10 years now. Every week we make a show. We don't take a week off, 52 weeks a year, and we've never had a repeat. So, And people ask, oh, how do you make your schedule? And that's the easiest thing about what we do because we simply film what we're doing that week. Like right now, I can't tell you for sure what next week's will be because it just depends on the wind and rain and everything else going on. So does it does it follow a cycle throughout the year? I mean, you know you're going to be doing some planting. Yeah, I mean, you know, we'll be doing some food plot work in the spring and prescribed fire if it's dry enough. And we'll be hunting in the fall. and. And we'll be trapping in the late winter, you know, it's kind of, kind of goes that way, but I'm always learning new techniques and new ways to do stuff because I meet people and they share with me techniques and ways I can improve. I imagine it's rewarding when you get to share that knowledge with folks. I, I know 
with the fan base that you have, you don't get to meet everybody. There's so many people who follow what you do and learn from you. But when you get that interaction with people one-on-one and you know that you're helping to, to better their property, better the wildlife on their property and their enjoyment of both the property and the wildlife, I imagine that's a pretty neat endeavor. It is. It, it is. I love hearing from them. We get a lot of email and, and meet people at shows and whatnot. But, you know, I really like, like last week, I, I'm a consultant still and a gentleman actually out of Florida just bought about 700 acres north of Gainesville, just a little bit north of Gainesville. And this was beautiful country, but like a lot of those arts, unmaintained. So all the, it had beautiful glades or the potential for beautiful glades, but they'd been covered with cedar trees. So I was helping him develop a plan. And, of course, my first plan was let's cut all the cedars out of these glades. It ended up being about 115 acres of glades on 700 acres of land, so big change. But there was enough openings in the glades that I could see there was a great native species component. Man, we found sensitive briar and compass plants, some really cool plants native to the Ozarks. But most of the ground was covered cedars. There was no sun reaching the, the soil, been no fire in there, and, you know, it was just suppressed. So, anyway, I, I'm excited to watch that project like I am projects. We work, we have worked in the past from New Zealand to Canada. So, I love staying in touch and watching these projects develop. That's great that you brought that up because that was going to be one of my questions about the little piece of property that I bought and I'm trying to develop. Mm -hmm. People that listen know that I've picked up some Ozark property of my own. Honestly, you influenced part of that purchase in the sense that you hear so many people talk about the fact that deer just don't get as big down in the Ozarks. And there might be some weight to that if you're comparing them to North Missouri and South Iowa and stuff. But, But deer definitely do get big. Down in the Ozarks. You know, I was just speaking uh, with some my buddies at MDC a while back, and they were telling me about the number of big deer they had reported out of the Ozarks this past year. And there weren't many acorns, so these big deer were a little bit more susceptible to harvest. You know, here in the Ozarks, we're mainly covered with timber, some fescue pastures, and when the acorns on the ground, those those deer can really hide from hunters pretty easy. They hide from me anyway. Several, you know, 150, 180 class deer taking out Ozark counties. That's incredible. I think it's more important, though, to remind folks that if you look at the stocking records, Missouri is a neat state in that they have not complete but pretty complete stocking records for the whole state of whitetail deer when they did restoration. And almost all the deer were taken out of three refuges, you know, Drew Mincy and, uh, of course, uh, Caney Mountain at Gainesville there and Peck Ranch was the source for most of the deer stocked in northern Missouri. So exact same genetics, different soil, different groceries. 100-acre soybean field versus 100 acres of fescue pasture is a big difference. It is. I actually got the hunt down at uh, Caney Mountain mm-hmm. this year. I drew a special tag, and it was really neat. We were going to stay in the Leopold cabin, but just time ran out to get prepared to do that, and I hope to be able to do that in the future. But hiking all over that place, chasing a turkey the last couple of days of the season, you could see how animals could survive there when they were getting yeah. snubbed out everywhere else. There are some deep, dark pockets of timber. And uh, the opportunity for deer to have sanctuaries away from from people coming after them. Caney is a very special place for me because it's the first place my father took me deer hunting. I think I was five or six years old. I I don't remember that, but I remember the hunt super clearly. And my dad passed this February, but we we just had some. When we got to go back in the early days, for those that don't remember, Caney Mountain was a primitive weapons place, but there was no lottery because there weren't that many primitive weapons hunters. So the old guys, and these were not you know inline muzzlers. These are kits you bought at a store and put together, or got a barrel and a lock and some trigger sets and a hedge post. Literally, my dad has a a flintlock he made out of a hedge post. The stock is an old hedge fence post that he of course whittled down and rasped down and. So we would all meet down there and camp and tents and man, it was cold and you know, it was just some of the greatest memories I had. Those and I'm are, not sure we ever killed very many deer, but we sure had a lot of fun. Those are great memories. We did the same thing in Indiana growing up. We'd tent camp and in, in yeah. gun season. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think when you do that, when you're little, it just makes you a little bit tougher. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, you're smelling like Coleman fuel and biscuits and everything else, but you don't, you know, you're just out there having fun. Yeah. There was no scent lock or anything like that no, back then. No, so. no. Scent was bacon grease. <laughs> yeah. If anybody's hearing that wind, you're just going to have to excuse it. It's too beautiful today to be inside. The the heat waves broke a little bit. We've got a slight breeze. It's sunny and scattered clouds looking out over this green canopy of forest. So yeah, excuse the wind, but we're not going to move inside. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So back to the property that I'm developing, I've got all kinds of questions for you. So okay. I only own 43 acres, uh-huh. which, you know, 40 acre track is a normal 
Absolutely. size for guys to be able to yeah, pick yeah, up. Yeah. I'm fortunate to be surrounded by a huge track of timber. Mm-hmm. And we're talking serious Ozark country. I mean, very, very rugged, very remote. There's a lot of deer in the timber. Mm-hmm. I, I'm seeing where I found a good spot to hunt. I'm seeing a lot more bucks than I'm seeing does. I'm way up high on a ridge. Mm-hmm. They're they're coming through, like they're just traveling through. I'm catching them on, on their feet. Mm-hmm. What can I do? Well, first, I know I need to take out some cedars. I had MDC private lands come out, uh-huh. and I've got about a nine-acre glade that, okay. that I need to get that cedar out. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's one thing I want to do. Mm-hmm. But without being able to see the place, you know, in your yeah. in your mind, what are some steps that I can do to make my little 40 acres attractive to deer that are living across these thousands acres? Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And we get that question all the time, and I, I live with it here. I own a little bit more land, but... I have a lot of neighbors, so it's like I'm managing several smaller pieces of land due to all the neighbors, right? So I look at, when I evaluate any property, I'm going to look at the sources of food, cover, water, not only on that property, but neighboring properties, and try to find what's the limiting factor in the neighborhood, and then provide it the best that I can afford to, and the land allows, on the property where I can hunt. So in your case, in the Ozarks, most likely surrounded by pretty mature timber, I assume, Food, especially summer food, early food before acorns fall, is a real limiting factor. So I would work on food plots where you can or manage in your timber to open up the canopy and get some native vegetation and cut those cedars and burn that glade. There'll be some great food and cover there. And the second thing, of course, we mentioned cover, is in mature Ozark timber, there's really no cover, right? It's it's open down below. So if you could do some TSI, timber stand improvement, or get some herbaceous growth below the timber, all of a sudden now you have the bedding area on your land for deer roaming all these areas around you. But here's a caution and a note, and we live with it here, okay? I mean, we've got, I think everyone would agree, the best food plots in the neighborhood or whatever here. But when the acorns fall, the acorns on my place are no different than the acorns on any neighbor's place. And so a deer that may spend 80% of their time on my place and 20 on the neighbors in the summer because I've got some soybean food plots or whatever, and all of a sudden the white oaks fall, well, that game's all over. The white oaks are the same, you know, more or less everywhere. And so that may now be a 50-50 ratio or even vice versa the other way. So when the acorns fall, you're just like the rest of us. You're just hoping deer wanders through. I've started doing some TSI. Uh-huh. Um, you know, one of the great things about this job and, and our relationship goes back prior to me being with the Federation when I was still at Battenfeld uh-huh. working on Caldwell. But moving into this job, it's like I've just been able to surround myself with experts. I've learned a little bit about a lot of things, mm-hmm. but I'm fortunate to spend time with people who know a lot about one thing. And one of those people is a, a friend of mine and a CFM board member, Jason Green, who mm-hmm. manages the Pioneer Forest. So knowing that I didn't know enough about forestry to to go in and attempt to do it right, I hired him as a consulting forester and they came in and did a select cut on my property. And just in my mind, I, I was nervous to go see it after the chainsaws started sure. buzzing. But I can't say enough about how well they did. I, I mean, he left so much timber that you can barely tell that they logged. But according to him, they took the right trees mm-hmm. and I, of course, believe them and I got a nice little chunk of change mm-hmm. out of the deal and improved the habitat of my property. So I always think that's a neat thing to talk about with people when when you really kind of separate the the preservation from conservation. Absolutely. And conservation being the wise use of our resources, that it's it's important to go in and, and help these harvests make wildlife habitat. Absolutely. You know, if we look back at the historical records, even here in the Ozarks, there were early settlers and explorers that come through and they kept journals. So we have a really accurate description of what the habitat looked like and the species that were here. And one of my favorite quotes from one of these early explorers, actually he was a botanist, said he loved working in the Ozarks because he could ride his horse through anywhere. And they wore big hats back then and never knocked a hat off his head, even riding through the timber. Well, there's not many patches of timber in the Ozarks you can do that now. You know, trees are so thick. Our basal area or the amount of trees per acre is so high. You can't really ride a horse through there comfortably, let alone without ducking all the time. And so what's happened is, is we're basically on our third generation of forest throughout much of the Ozarks. Now, in your country, there's a few patches of, you know, second, even first generation forest, but not many. And when they cut and just left the sprouts come up without any management, it was too thick and different species. Of course, deer preferred the white oaks, so they kind of ate those down and let the red oaks come back and blah, blah, blah. Here where I live, if you look at some of the historic maps of this particular property, there was a lot of pine on it. And, of course, our native pine here would be the shortleaf pine. 
when I got the place, I could find two shortleaf pines on the property. One of them was a sapling, and unfortunately, when we're cutting cedars, one of the crews I hired cut that pine, and my wife was very unhappy with me. And the second was about a 20-foot-tall pine on a ridgetop that we were really proud of. And it had a bunch of oak brush around it, and I was going to do a prescribed fire in there. Now, I knew the fire would not hurt the pine, thick bark or fire adapted. Some of the oak brush had died back, and I was like, you know, I'm going to pull that out away just so it doesn't get too hot next to this one pine tree on the property. And that worked great. The fire went great. Everything went great. But what I didn't think, and you'd think a deer biologist would have thought of this, of course, pines are very aromatic. And when I cleared all that brush with the pine, it was about four or five inches diameter at about four feet off the ground. The bucks found it and rubbed it so much, they girdled it and killed it. Wow. So my actions led to the demise of the last pine tree on this property. Good intentions. At a yeah, my wife was not happy with wow. me. I, I'm fortunate to have one stand of short leaves on my they're, – they're scattered throughout. And, yeah, they're my favorite tree. Now. Yeah. I just absolutely love them. But I have one stand that whoever he was or she was, I'm so thankful that they must have planted them back you know, right. 50 years ago because they're not quite – there's nothing quite as big around as this table, but some of them are getting close. Sure. There's some beautiful towering yeah. pines. Yeah. And yeah. I can't wait to get in there and – clean it all up and i've actually threatened to get a teepee <laughs> and, and set it up in that area and just kind of make it in a, a place to chill out and enjoy yeah. that beautiful spot it's up on a up on a sloping hillside coming off of a ridge and runs down to the creek but yeah so back to my place too water's not an issue mm-hmm. i'm on right on a, a major creek that's mm-hmm. really a small river at that point mm-hmm. and then a, a really nice spring creek the kind of spring creek that if johnny morris could get his hands on it it would become one of the oh, world's yeah. greatest yeah. trout fishing it kind of reminds me of the dogwood canyon creek it's about mm-hmm. that size and with some manipulation could really be a beautiful stretch of water so water isn't really an issue it seems like and the private lands people said well you could put a pond or two in up top, mm-hmm. but on that small of an acreage with that much water running by, do you think the ponds are? I don't think it's going to make any difference. Uh, it would be nice and aesthetically pleasing, but if you're like me, you have limited time and resources, and it sounds like there's some other resources that need more attention than water. So we we'll go back to food cover, and then the one resource that's really talked about is security. And a lot of guys I know, and I, Trace and I started on 13 acres, so I get this, is you feel like when you have a little bit smaller acreage, you've got to utilize every square inch of it. And you tend to hunt every square inch of it. So therefore, deer are alerted everywhere and there's no sanctuary. And through my years, we've been in corporate now 28 years, I've learned that, you know, if you're 80 acres, 40 acres, something like that, one of the most important things you can do is set aside 10, 15, 20 acres and just don't go in there. Make it a true sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And let deer have a place to be comfortable so they'll stay on your property or spend more time on your property anyway. And sanctuaries are the easiest of habitat. You simply just don't go in there. You may go in there shed hunting or certainly recover, you know, game that you've harvested or something like that. But other than that, pretty much leave it alone. And deer will adapt to that. Deer sense where they're safe. And then just think about this. I've watched this. I've physically watched this. We used to collect a lot of deer on golf courses and whatnot. And I've seen deer walk across the road from a protected area, state park, whatever, to an area that was hunted and change behavior, literally crossing the road. Literally. I've Mm -hmm. seen this many times. And this is well-documented research with GPS collars, night and daytime behavior, blah, blah, blah. So creating a sanctuary is an important tool for most landowners that are interested in in wildlife like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny you say that because what I, where I'm struggling now is, is I'm kind of using the whole property as a sanctuary. I'm fortunate to have so much public land around me uh-huh. that I've identified places to hunt on that public land. And I've been successful in the last two seasons with two rifle bucks and a bow buck, mm-hmm. same tree. Oh, wow. And, uh, and just not hunting my place. And so that's exactly what I want to do is kind of develop it into this sanctuary area the problem is is i'm running trail cameras in there and i'm seeing these deer and i'm f- starting to get this false sense that these are my deer you know like and a couple of them went off property and got killed last year and i'm like oh. but you know you you want to see them in there and and survive and but of course as soon as they they leave that sanctuary area they're fair game for me or anybody sure. else as well sure. but yeah so getting in there and getting those cedars down i know is a priority i want to open that glade back up and for those of us here in the Ozarks or other places that have cedar encroachment, 
cedar blade restoration is probably the least expensive versus benefit, cost versus benefit habitat work you can do. I mean, it's just here we have converted lots of acres that were cedars to native habitat. And the wildflowers this spring were beautiful. They're still beautiful now. And we're actually seeing several poults. You know, Missouri's turkey population is not looking too good at the moment. And we have seen different groups of poults on the property. And I attribute that to the great habitat work we do. And we do trap here. I'm, I'm a very active trapper and we try to balance predator and prey populations. I'm not trying to get rid of every coyote, but I want to find a balance in there. Do you attribute coyotes to a lot of turkey poult and deer uh, fawn predation? Oh, certainly deer fawn. That research is well published over and over. Matter of fact, Pennsylvania, one of the guys I went to grad school, leads the, the wildlife center at Penn State there for the feds, you know, and they do some massive research. They have hundreds of deer with GPS collars, blah, blah, blah. And they just did a summary of 30 different fawn projects throughout North America. And clearly, predation is number one cause of fawn death. Clearly. I mean, it's not even questionable. So, I mean, that's always going to happen. We're never going to get rid of all of it. But what happens is, you know, fur prices are in the bottom of the barrel right now. When I was a kid, a coon was $40. Now it's $4, literally. And gas and steel is a whole lot higher than it used to be. So there is a tad of just, a, you know, coons and coyotes and possums and everything else is out there. And and just be, you know, and I'll get a bunch of hate mail over this. But if you just think about this just a second, you know, raptors, which I agree with, but have been protected for a long, long time now. Who can drive down the road and not see a, a red tail at least one per mile? No one can do that in Missouri, hardly anywhere. Certainly not up where I live. You know, we're north of the river and north of Columbia, about 20 miles. And that is probably the most common bird I see. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, you know, and I'm not complaining, folks, so don't send me a bunch of hate mail. But <laughs> we've got to realize they're eating and they're not just eating mice. That's That's a fallacy to say that. Right. Yeah, we're not going to look for a hawk hunting season anytime no, soon. No, no, I'm not promoting the that. The truth is the truth. But we, but we need to balance and create better habitat so there mm-hmm. is better habitat. And that's where a lot of the CRP programs and stuff go on. Because, you know, a quail trying to make it through a bare cut bean field in the winter isn't going to survive. Right. All right, so back to the cedars. So now I've got this nine acres of cedar that's got to come down. Yep. I was surprised that I couldn't find anybody to even give it to. Like, say, hey, you can log it if you just log it. Nobody wants my cedar. So what What do I do? do yeah, I well, we we had the same thing here. And we had a few, I had a few buddies that took the premium logs that were within like 10 feet of a road somewhere. Hmm. Other than that, so we just fell it where it was. We fell it. The first year we'd fail and burn in the same year or the year after, and that we've learned since then. Now what we strongly prefer to do is fail and let it go through two drying seasons. I like to be able to walk up to the cedar, slap it with my hand, and the needles fall off like a year-old Christmas tree. And then when you burn, you get great consumption not only the needles but some of the bigger wood too. Otherwise, you end up with five-foot-tall skeletons laying everywhere, or, you know, depending on how big the tree is around. And that's not all bad. That's great wildlife cover, and it actually kind of acts as a utilization cage, which would be like a wire basket we put in a bean field or something to see how much the deer are eating versus how tall the beans get where they don't have access to. So once we go in and cut the cedars, should I just leave them lay? Should we pile them up into brush piles? What What do you do with them once yeah. they're on the ground? There's a couple of schools of thought on that, but I'm really strong on, on my school of thought on this one is, and it's based on some experience I had a long time ago in grad school. We SMZs or stream management zones were kind of coming in vogue, and I was on a project where they were doing some of that stuff, and basically we're leaving a buffer along the stream to keep siltation from getting into the water. But while we were doing that, and we left, you know, a, a buffer X yards wide or 100 yards wide or whatever, what we didn't realize at the time, but it made sense, is all the turkeys and all the does are going to go in there and have their poults and fawns. And what we made is a predator food plot, because now they got this narrow band of cover that all the critters are going to go hunt. And we had almost zero pulp production in those environments. And so when you take the brush out of a 10-acre area, let's say, and doze up in one pile and think, boy, look at that wildlife habitat I made. Any coon or coyote or bobcat or snake can get in there and just rake havoc on the prey species in there. Another project I was on was a big quail project down in South Georgia, you know, way back in the day. And one of my students told me, boy, we got this quail collar, and they're about $250 at a time. In the middle of a brush pile. Well, I knew instantly it went up, probably went a mama quail in there. I said, we'll get the collar back, and it was a big gray rat snake. So he terminated the snake to get our collar out of the inside. <laughs> it was clearly in the snake, right? <laughs> and he started at the anus and moving towards the mouth, and he went through nine quail eggs, and the last thing in or closest to the mouth was the hen quail with our collar on it. She'd try to protect the nest. 
And that gray rat snake ate all the eggs and then ate the mama. I'm kind of jealous of that meal. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. So on cedars, I want to fell them right where they are and make a thousand little cover points out there than one big one. So the predator has to hunt a lot to find all the critters out there. Another thing I was told, you don't want to take tractors on that kind of No, you know, glade soil is always fragile. It's always real thin and shallow and fragile. So we, we here, we've, we've restored several hundred acres of glades, and we did it all by hand. We just chainsaw, cut the cedar below the bottom limb. That will terminate it. That will kill it. Let it lay right where it is. Let it dry for a couple of years and run a prescribed fire through there. It's a fun fire, by the way. And, uh, and run a fire through there, and you get this tremendous native vegetation response in almost every glade I've seen in the Ozarks. And that, that's just the native vegetation that's in the ground already. Yeah. You're not supplemental seeding. We've we've seeded nothing here. And I think I mentioned earlier, we, we have like 176 identified different species of grasses and forbs in our glade. Super rich diversity. Inside that glade area, I've got one opening that's about the size of a swimming pool. or It's round. Mm-hmm. And there's a half a dozen cone flowers. Oh, yeah. And I feel like they're just begging me just yeah. like let the rest of us come up i am so impressed with the glades we've we've you know designated to have this treatment on here in the ozarks and go back a year or two later after they burned and it is shocking the color and the diversity of flowers and everything and the wildlife use and and we just did this we're showing this on an episode here just in a few days but we put out dry ice when dry ice melts it puts off the same scent that we exhale and that's what attracts ticks and if you're in the Ozarks this year you know what I'm talking about when I say ticks they are wicked this year mm-hmm. like my legs look like I got the measles right now literally and so we put some dry ice out in a non-burned area and put dry ice out in some burned area on a you know a white square of plastic and let them both set for 3 hours and on in the burned area, we had about 80 or 90 ticks. They were all infants, juveniles, first stage, if you want to be scientific, first instance. Okay. On the other area, we had hundreds and hundreds of ticks of all species and sizes. Clearly, the fire set back the tick population, but we got to be realistic. Now, you've just burned and made new vegetation, fresh, succulent vegetation. The deer are going to come in here, and ticks are going to drop off them. So if you're doing a small area, 10, 20 acres, within a few weeks, deer are going to be feeding in there as soon as it greens up. Ticks are going to drop off and start repopulating. You're not going to like hold the tick population down for years on end, but you can certainly set it back. Boy, if you could figure out how to hold it down, you can make some real money on it. Oh that. my gosh, <laughs> they're so bad. And there's so many tick-borne illnesses uh, anymore that really mess up humans that we need to be serious about this. Yeah, just saying tick, I'm starting to itch my legs. <laughs> they seem to get underneath the back of my knees. Oh yeah. On, yeah that area. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they're so yeah. bad. Okay, so don't worry about water. I'm glad you said that on my Yeah, it sounds like in your situation, some places do. You know, water's a limiting factor. Again, I always go back to I'm going to identify the property and the neighboring properties, and I'm going to look for the best sources of food, cover, and water. And and the limiting factor, be it food, cover, water, or sanctuary area, I'm going to try to develop on the property where I'm hunting. So I've done some TSI. I've got to get rid of those cedars. That'll that's about twenty five percent of the property that'll be opened up into a glade. So Mm. that'll be the cover. Yeah, it's going to be a big thing. So that leads leads us to food. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a lot of room mm-hmm. I've, I've got one food plot area that's uh, it's actually a really nice bench that's maybe 30 yards wide at the widest point and 100 yards long so mm-hmm. it's a pretty good size mm-hmm. and and then a couple smaller areas way up on top that i can plant in so with that limited amount of space and no one is doing food plots around me there's there's an, almost 100,000 acres of public land behind me no food plots in there it's not MDC land, so it's not being managed for right. wildlife. Right. None of my neighbors that I'm aware of have any kind of food out. What's your recommendation? What's okay. going to suck them in better than anything? Yeah, so we got to be realistic. You're planting a few acres that are feeding deer over a pretty large area, as large as a deer's home range is in your area, and that's an unknown, easily a mile, okay? You're not going to plant a few acres and make great big antlers or, you know, make every doe have triplets or something like that. That's Iowa. That's not where we live. You and I live. But you can plant some food and make tremendous attraction for the fall, pre and post acorn drop. So what I like to do is really focus on my fall plantings, but not ignore the warm season or summer, because if you let it go to weed patch all summer long, you got to continue with that in the fall. So during the summer... I'm probably going to plant a, a Roundup Ready or a soybean like that where I can control the weeds and provide some high-quality food. And, and I'm going to throw in maybe some other plants with it, depending on the weed pressure. But in the fall, I'm going to have a mix of cereal grains, 
Okay. Those are cold hardy and deer will eat them, especially with little nutrients to them. And some brassicas, very cold hardy, produce a lot of tonnage quickly. And I'm always going to have a legume. Remember, folks, there's 78,000 plus pounds of nitrogen in the air above every acre on the planet Earth. Why would anyone ever pay for nitrogen? There's 78,000 pounds of nitrogen above every acre in the air. We only want to get two or 300 pounds of it and put it in the soil. And legumes do that easily. Soybeans, a legume, crimson clover, there's all kinds. So I'm going to have a legume in the summer and a legume in the winter, pulling nitrogen out of the air and put it in soil. I don't like perennial clover in the Ozarks. We tend to have hot, dry summers and shallow soils, and rarely does perennial clover do well, so you're spending a lot of money for a crop that's likely to fail. So I don't use a lot of – I use a lot of annual clovers. When we first met, I was down here helping install the hot zone electric uh-huh. fence uh-huh. on a, a property like mine when there's nothing else around. Do you think that's a, a – I'm a huge fan of those fences. I use them here, even uh-huh. on my property. And you can save some forage through the summer and then have it, A, for biomass or slow-release fertilizer for your fall crop or forage for your fall crop. And I use what's called the buffalo system, and that's just a you know a nothing name that we come up with around the campfire here, so to speak. But what I'm doing is replicating how the great prairies were developed. If you think about it, great prairies had a mixture of species growing, not a monoculture. And they had plants growing as many days out of years as warm enough for something to grow. And then either wildfire or buffalo would trample it down. It ne- the soil was never tilled, right? And then a new crop would grow. And that trampled down vegetation would become the slow-release fertilizer. There was no lime trucks, no fertilizer trucks, and it's you know some of the best soil on the planet. So what I do is I work with the folks up at RTP Outdoors, and I've got they make little three-foot drills or whatever. i got a, a no-till drill, even a little small one for a UTV or an ATV or whatever, right? So I'm never disking the soil. I'm just putting the seed in the soil with a little bitty no-till drill. We're not talking a 40-foot plant in a, you know, an a cornfield up by where you live. We're talking a little bitty no-till drill made for food plots. Put seed in the soil, let that crop grow, and then my buffalo, what I call a steel buffalo, is a crimper they make. It's a roller with crimping blades on it that I can terminate the crop like a herd of buffalo with trampling it down. I'm just replicating nature because we don't have buffalo running around anymore. And instead of a flat roller, which just presses stuff over, a crimper has blades on it, so it breaks the circulatory system every six, eight inches of a plant, and that will terminate that plant. You know when you drive over your yard with a truck or something, the grass is going to stand right back up. Just mashing it down won't kill it, but when you break the circulatory system, it will kill the plant. So I use a crimper, and those are my two tools. I've got a little drill and a little crimper, and I've got you know some backpack sprayers I can spray herbicide with should I have a bad weed problem, get some thistles in there or something like that that I can't control, and go from there. I'm glad you brought up RTP products. They're a great partner of the Federation. I really enjoy companies like that. You know, when you see them working with someone like yourself and, and then supporting an organization like ours, it's obvious that they truly do care about conservation. They buy into to the practices and then to produce products that help us go out and make habitat better. I like to share something here, just a little aside, because I didn't know RTP or Paul at all. And, and I got a phone call one day and this guy said, hey, I... I work for this turf management equipment company, and we got a turf drill I want to bring down to see if it works for food plots. And I literally laughed. I said, what? <laughs> Man, buddy, I live in the Ozarks. It's going to be dinging off rocks like every foot. Like, you hear our drill, you know, we could set a fire with our drill literally sparking off rocks. I mean, that literally. Mm-hmm. So he said, well, you know, just give me 30 minutes of your time. So we drove down from St. Louis, four hours down here. I'm down by Branson. And I took him out of meanness of my heart. I took him to this little 30 by 30 yard, what we call a hidey food plot. It was like sheet rock. I mean, like a sheet of rock. I mean, it was I like, I'm going to break this guy's drill and get him out of my hair, right? You know? <laughs> so I, I planted it the right way, and I didn't break anything. So I said, well, Paul, really, when I plant this stuff, I go, you know, perpendicular again to get good seed coverage. So I drove over the whole thing twice. It was just rock. And I didn't break the drill. But it wasn't what I wanted. It had a downspout over three inches. It had a lot of things to plant turf grass with. And I told him, I said, I am super impressed with the quality equipment, but this won't work for me because of X, Y, Z, A, B, C. It's okay, man. I appreciate your time. I thought, I'll never see this guy again. No big deal, you know. He didn't buy me lunch or anything, you know. Two weeks later, he calls me up and said, hey, we made a bunch of those modifications. Would you mind if I showed you the drill? And I'm like, what? I guess. So he come down, and sure enough, I took him to the same rocky spot. And he had made, he'd pulled out every other downspout and actually replaced them to seven and a half inches like a normal drill and done some stuff. And I, I used it and I said, man, this is a lot better, but it, to really get my attention, you need to change ABC, XYZ, different packing wheels, all the stuff, you know. 
thought, well, I'll never see him again. Anyway, short story, he did that. We did this seven times. What I didn't know, they were air freighting that thing to Holland and making the changes and air freighting back. Think about the money they spent. Oh, yeah. Because these drills are heavy, folks. Thousands of pounds, all steel, thousands of pounds. And, and, and the great thing was their lead engineer, who's a guy named Tome, T-O-M, okay, doesn't deer hunt, never seen a food plot in his life. So he wasn't arguing with me. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about – I'm a blood and guts guy. I don't know anything about metal, mechanics, any of that stuff. So I wasn't telling him how to change the drill. I just told him what I thought needed to happen. And he wasn't telling me no because he's never seen a food plot. He said, oh, well, Grant says must be. And so the two of us not fighting each other ended up with a really great product because I knew the food plot side. This is my dream drill. Boy, if I had a drill, this is what I want to do. And Tome knows what metal will do and what it won't do. And the proving grounds really come into play because it's so rocky here. If it didn't break here, it's not going to break anywhere. And that's how that product came to market. And I don't own it. You know, I'm not making money by saying that. You know, I use their product for sure. I wish I owned, you know, a bunch of percent of the company in hindsight, but that's not the case. I wasn't smart enough to buy the Walmart stock, and I wasn't uh, smart enough to do that. No, they're they're great guys, and, and Paul's offered to come down and, and help me establish my food plots, uh-huh. and I'm going to take them up on that. Absolutely. So we'll be rolling those RTP products through Driftwood Acres as well. Well, you're looking out several food plots here, and, and every single one of them was planted, and you see how rocky it is. You can see how dry my yard is compared to the food plot right there. I mean— it's been a big thing. We just crimped it. That You're looking at where we crimped the fall cover crop there, which is our fall food plot, fancy word for the food plot. And you can see the young soybeans starting to come up through it. Yeah, oh, it's, it's gorgeous. Another thing that I see when I pull in here is uh, redneck blinds. I yeah. don't want to get off on a whole product tangent, but no. you know they're another partner of ours. And I know you've been partnered with Redneck for a long time. Yeah. And what, what quality products they put out. And yeah. They're very generous. In fact, well, we have an event at another one of our shared partners, uh, Bass Pro Shops, tonight, and we'll have a redneck blind there on the auction. So, yeah, those companies that just kind of stand out, you know, for their work in conservation, and it really is a blessing to have partners like that and to be able to share them with people like yourself. I will tell you, one of the greatest lines I've ever heard in this whole conservation thing is years ago, I was this is many years ago, folks, and this is relevant. I was at a summit about CWD, actually, at at Bass Pro's Big Cedar Lodge. They were generous enough to let the, the summit be there and had a bunch of, you know, biologists like me and industry people there to try to figure out, hey, what are we going to do with this thing? I was there. Okay. And I'm a back row guy. So if you ever come to, you know, First Baptist Church in Branson, I'm usually sitting on the back row. You want to find me, just go to the back right corner. <laughs> you know, I'm a back row guy. So at this thing, I'm sitting in the back row, too. And and Cabela's was there because they were donating some money to it or whatever. And and I'm and, and the guy from Cabela's just got up to talk. And so it's Cabela's on the big screen. This is before anyone thought about buying Cabela's, you know, anything like that. I know where you're going with this. Yeah. And Mr. Morris walks in. He's a very, if you don't know him, very quiet guy. You know, he's not boastful or anything. And, and I, I got so nervous because I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, the owner of this whole building just walked in and there's a Cabela's logo. Bookended on both ends yes, on big um, screens. And I, I mean, I was nervous, physically nervous. And he sat down by me and I know him, you know, hey, Grant, how you doing? You know, and I, I, I can only talk. I was so nervous. And, you know, 10 minutes later, the guy got done with his little spiel and it's the time to go talk about Bass Pro. So Mr. Morse went up there and he kind of jokingly said, now, he had no time to prepare for this. So I was obviously a shock when he saw it. I was there, folks. I saw this. And, he goes, boy, I never thought I'd walk in Big Cedar and see Cabela's on the big screen. But I guess when it comes to conservation, there is no competition. And I, that line melted in my brain. Me too. And, and that's that's amazing that you brought that up. That This is not scripted. Anybody listening? We I took that quote from him, and it's in our business alliance package. So when I go to sell these business alliance partnerships to our partners mm-hmm. – there is a whole page that says there is no competition in conservation. Yeah, Johnny yeah. Morris. So, and he must have just that must have just come. I in was the there. Moment. Yeah. I was there. I, there's no doubt. I saw the look on his face when he saw the Cabela's, and I saw him laugh yeah. and chuckle. It, it, it was not planned. He could have walked in a minute later and never saw that slide. Yeah, no doubt in my mind. So, you know, along that line, that made a big impact on me and apparently several other people. So me too. I just got an email this morning. Asking if I would join, and these are personal friends of mine, but we do compete against each other a little bit. But uh, if I would join Mark and Terry Drury and Matt Drury uh, coming up on a Facebook Live gig to talk about Deer Management Missouri and CWD and some other stuff going on. And that was my response to, to the person that invited me. I said, hey, man, there is no competition when it comes to conservation. I'll be glad if I can help share a little information or education. I'll be glad to be there. There's a, a guy named Tim. The Thinking Woodsman is his moniker, and he just went to work for the Drury's and 
uh, great guy. And so I, I imagine he's doing some of that okay. digital stuff for him. So okay. if you run, run across Tim, okay. make sure you say hi to yeah. him. Yeah. And, and they, Mark and Terry are great guys. I've known them for years. Oh, yeah. They come to the uh, Whitetails Unlimited banquet in Columbia and donate their time. And I'm, I hate to get this wrong, but it's make a dream or mm-hmm. they sell off catch a, a dream. Sh- catch a dream. Catch they, a dream. They raise so much money doing that. And it's yeah. so generous of them to come. And, yeah. You know, that's what's so cool about this industry is you get to know people that you've looked up to and, and hope to meet for a long time. And more often than not, you find out that they're just normal people absolutely, like you. And we're just blessed to be able to make a living in the outdoors. Yeah. All right. So I think I know what to do with my property. So thank you. I got the free consultation. All right. I'm going to charge you a hunt for it. I think I'm going to come, I'm going to come fish that stream with you. I, I think you'd rather fish than hunt. I, I, leaving here to hunt my place might not be uh that beneficial for you, but I could float you down the river. I'm all in it. Put you on some trout. Another issue that we've talked about before, and, and I know you're a, a leading voice on is, is chronic wasting disease. And I'd, I'd be remiss not to, to broach the topic with you while we're sitting here today. It, it continues to grow. You know, one thing that I will say on my end, working a lot on the politics side of it, in 2014, when this all started blowing up in the General Assembly, I was literally called names like liar and I, I mean, just bad, bad names by politicians who, who thought that, you know, this is some kind of motivated mm-hmm. attempt to go after deer breeders and, sure. you know, and, and we were just trying to explain the science of yes. CWD and how, how devastating how devastating this disease can potentially be. Absolutely. Fast forward to the 2018 session and the debate that was going on between senators that have been along on this ride with us for the last half a decade now was encouraging. Like they're getting it. You know, it's starting to sink in that this isn't some made up disease or some politically motivated coup attempt yeah, yeah. that, uh, that we have a real serious problems on our hands. So, so I think, and a lot of that is is due to the work in the media. A few years ago, you didn't see articles or, or you know, in depth looks in television shows on CWD, and I think everybody's starting to understand the gravity and move towards it. Well, so awareness is being raised. Awareness is being raised. But I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. Just based last week, Texas A&M, uh, not last week, but a while back, Texas A&M put out a great publication about CWD, just explaining some facts on seven or eight points. And it's all, every paragraph cites multiple scientific refereed publications, not opinions. Okay, refereed publications means someone had to research this, send it for peer review, so other people had to say, this guy used good design, good scientific methods, or he's just full of bull and we're not going to publish this. Okay, so solid work, right? Solid work, not debatable, solid work. And it was written in a very clear, e- heck, I could even understand it, very clear, easy, you know, form. So I thought I was kind of doing a little public service, and I put it on my Facebook page, and I just said, hey, I would take it as a favor if you're a deer hunter, if you would read this and share it. Well, it lit up, I mean, I don't know, hundreds, thousands, right, not 2020. We're blessed with pretty large following. And and I was, again, you know, called every name in the book. This is last week. Every name in the book, and I'm only, you know, I, and I, I'm paid by MDC, which I've never worked for MDC. I volunteer, but never worked for them, right? And I just, all I want to do is kill every doe on the planet and make more money. Folks, this is real easy. MDC and every state agency that fights this spends way more on testing deer and the manpower than they would ever make on selling doe tags. That is so ridiculous to even think that. And then all the, there's some people out there in the media saying this isn't a disease or blah, blah, blah. Folks, we have five decades of watching CWD now. We've seen it go from almost non-existent to now in 24 states, two provinces, and multiple foreign countries. We know for a fact that an elk was shipped out of North America to South Korea and took the disease there. It's not questionable. It's documented. We have maps of deer being legally moved just around the state of Pennsylvania, and that map is red with lines. There's so many deer being moved. It is no doubt how this disease is being spread. So we don't know everything about disease, and I'm so sick of people arguing over it. It's not debatable. It is a disease. No deer has been known to survive it. Some deer live a year or two longer because they have a different genotype. What does that mean? That that's two more years or nine months longer, actually, that they're spreading the disease, that they're urinating, defecating, and salivating over more to habitat. 
It would be the best case scenario that if a deer had CWD, it would die that day so it doesn't spread it anymore. There's so much misunderstanding here. So here is if, and I don't want the job. I was actually offered a job in a state many years ago, and I turned it down because I knew there was a no-win situation. But if I was a deer czar, and I don't want to be deer czar, I'm just Grant the Wildlife Biologist, okay? Don't misunderstand me. Don't read between the lines. But God forbid someone appointed me deer czar. Here's the rules I'd make. Number one. Until we learn a lot more about CWD on really good research, not spread, prevalence, distribution, we know that now, but until we learn more about the actual disease, the pathology of the disease, there should be no deer move, no state agencies restocking critters from different states, no deer move for commercial purposes, no deer move for any reason, live deer I'm talking, period, okay? Except for intense research under very controlled situations. So we're not stocking elk, we're not doing anything, because that's a grenade we're throwing in a gas bomb. Folks' reason is there's no there's no right now good live test. We can take deer out of populations that we don't think have CWD, but we cannot take deer out of populations we know don't have CWD because there is no good live test. Not one. Two, hunters must stop moving all deer parts. We can move antlers, we can move meat, and meat can move pelts with almost no problem. But bones, glands, and nervous system are different stories. So simply debone your deer. And no, I'm not mean. You know, I'm here. You're here looking at a you know a cedar glade after a half mile I've cut and burned. And if I kill a deer there, I'm gonna bring it up here to the house where I got a water hose and I can clean it better and prepare the meat for my family better. We eat venison. We eat all the deer here. Okay. But I'm talking about killing a deer in western Kansas or Colorado and bringing it back to Missouri or killing a deer in Lynn County, Missouri, and bringing it to a county where CWD hadn't been found. Kill it. Dress it, prepare it in the county or the farm you killed it on. Don't move it counties and counties away or across state lines or whatever. That's just a no-no, and it's so easy to debone deer. If you don't know, we put together a real simple video on our site, our Bass Pros website. There's nothing for sale in it. It's just a simple step how to debone a deer. You don't get all bloody, nasty, messy, and the meat will taste better. Third, we must start funding, and this is a lot of money now. We're not talking $10. Serious research, not just studying the prevalence and distribution of CWD, but the causes and potential actions we can take. And there's one university I'm aware of, and I'm not a disease specialist, but there's one university pretty commonly agreed in America that's miles and miles ahead of anywhere else on prion-type diseases. They studied the human form and, and, you know, stuff like that. I think they got like 600 human brains stored there that died. You know, a lot of the... uh, Cannibal tribes in the islands get a higher rate of these type of diseases. It's not CWD, but it's closely related. And that's Case Western University, and they are just miles ahead. So instead of taking some wildlife biologists and spending 10 years teaching them all the disease pathology, let's go to the disease pathologists and teach them wildlife. We can do that in a few months. And, and that's kind of my three things under what we know right now. And as research and knowledge progresses, that certainly could change. But from what we know right now, those are the best steps, and that's widely agreed, not just Grant Wood saying that. That's widely agreed by many, many solid scientists. That's great information. Thanks a lot for that. I, I think I know the answer to this already, and it's going to hurt when you when you tell me. But, you know, I've dreamed all these years about having a place and being able to, to start doing the trail cam surveys sure, that I've watched sure. you do for years and years yes, and years. Yes. Of course, the best way to attract deer to a trail cam area is through supplemental feeding, yes. putting out trophy rocks and yep. mineral yep. licks. Some attractive, yes. I'm legally able to do that still in Shannon County. Should I stop? You know, I'm going to default to, I asked, I was at a CWD meeting, and I asked a state vet, a lady, state vet from Wyoming, who's been dealing with this for decades more than we have here. Like, you know, we're just getting our fingernails dirty. These folks have been battling it and studying it for a long time. And I consider this lady very smart and very honest. And I, and I was kind of taken aside of, you know, I don't think there's enough data to say we can't put a corn pile out or, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, and she said, Grant, it's real simple. I can explain this real simple where anyone can understand. It. I said, okay, I'd like to hear that. She said, you got a dog. I said, yeah, my wife has a lab. This is a shed hunting lab, actually. She said, well, if you kept that lab all year long in a 10-foot kennel and you stepped in there, you're liable to step and poop. But if you kept the dog in a 100-yard pasture, you could walk all through it and probably not step in poop. 
And if there is one sick deer in the area, it's going to come to the attractant most likely. And it's going to urinate, defecate, or salivate, or all three, right there. And the other deer that come in there are going to step in it, lick it, smell it, you know, do something to it. And everyone says, well, Grant, that's no different. Here's the common arguments, folks. I've heard them till I'm blue in the face. Food plots are just the same. No, you replenish the same three or four feet with bait. A food plot, when they eat the soybean or clover or whatever, they move over and eat the ones because there's nothing there anymore. They're not sticking their head in the same place all the time. It's absolutely simple to understand. When you're feeding, you are forcing or strongly encouraging deer to stick their head where another deer stuck their head day after day after day. And it's just not a good thing. That's a great explanation. I've not yeah. heard that. That's an easy one to understand. But, and people say, well, how about acorns? Folks, I've been hunting now for over 40 years in the Ozarks here. I love hunting acorn trees if I can find the right one. But, you know, acorns fall and the deer eat them in a week or two and they move to the next tree and the next tree and the next tree. They're not, you don't see, I've never seen in my life, if you're being honest, you will agree, the amount of feces under an acorn tree that I see under a feeder that's been there a couple of months. Because you're just concentrating deer. And think about this. Look at, look at my property here. There are thousands of oak trees you're looking at. Maybe millions. I don't know. No one would have that many feeders, right? No. So there is no doubt there are fewer feeders than oak trees in almost all of Missouri. You're concentrating deer more to feeder than oak trees. So those arguments are just totally wrong. I would think that protecting deer should be our number one objective. Not protection as in never harvesting, but conserving deer and doing what's right. And ticks are horrible here, folks. I've had confirmed Rocky Mountain spotted fever. I've had to take the drugs. My youngest daughter's had Rocky Mountain spotted fever. I had a rickliosis last year. I'm a transplant patient. These are serious diseases because I've had a kidney transplant 26 years. These are serious. Ticks are horrible here. We talked about that a little earlier, I think. Ticks are horrible here. And there's some feed products that have garlic or some natural things in there that will reduce ticks. Deer don't like to taste, or apparently ticks don't like to taste the blood-tainted garlic <laughs> or garlic-tainted blood, I guess it is. And it, And I used it when it was legal. And the number of ticks on the deer here drastically decreased. You could see it in trail camera pictures easily. And I stopped doing it. So my testimony is clear what I believe. Yeah. I, I, and ticks are horrible. But you know what? We've had ticks forever. And deer populations survive them. And I'd like, can I go on here in my soapbox one more little bit here? Keep going. I hear this all the time. And I got this on Facebook last week so much. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to jap sap somebody. I just made me so mad. I'm sorry. I just made me mad. People say, well, EHD is what we really ought to worry about. Folks, here's the deal, okay? We've studied EHD for decades. We know a lot about EHD, many, many decades, long before the word CWD was a term. And EHD in 2012 wiped about a third of the deer off my property in a couple of months. It was wicked. I got my wife's a big shed hunter. I got tired of her bringing in skulls instead of sheds that winter. Tired of it. I got a barn full you saw walking over here of them okay now we need to kill about three does per hundred acres this fall to get our deer in check we know every time ehd has happened on the planet deer bounce back it may take more years than others in some places but they always bounce back we've yet to see a deer herd with cwd bounce back folks it doesn't happen because the cwd prions stay in the soil ehd is over the first frost it kills the biting flies that spread it cwd sheds a bent protein in the soil that you can cook at 2,000 degrees or soak in Clorox, and it's still infective. So there's a massive difference between CWD and EHD, and I would 100 times to 1 rather have EHD hit my property than CWD, 100 times to 1. To paraphrase Aldo Leopold and not get the quote exactly right, but you know, ethics is doing the right thing even when nobody's looking, Yeah, even if the right thing's legal. I heard another quote. I read an author, Andy Andrews, a lot of the time, and Andy shared a quote with me or wrote a quote, didn't say, didn't call me up and say, hey, Grant, you know, but he says, maturity is doing what's right even when you don't want to. Yeah. And hunters on this situation probably need to mature a little bit. And it's painful. Sure it is. I used to do camera surveys here and we still do it, but now we're putting a troll camera on a food plot or a natural scrape or, you know, a synthetic made mock scrape or whatever and still getting pictures of deer. Do we get as many? No. But are we still able to manage and hunt and kill good deer? Yeah, sure. Yeah, the uh, the latest press release that came out from the Department of Conservation last week, that was 
the nail in the coffin for me. That's when I started thinking about that question myself. That video, you talking about that little video they had at the bottom of the thing? Uh huh. That is, I wish everyone listening would watch that video. I wish everyone listening would watch that video. Again, let me stress, I don't work for NBC. I'm not paid by NBC. I don't need special privileges for NBC. Game Warren checks me just like he does everyone else. But that video was really well done, and the amount of data they shared in there should convince anyone. Yeah, the, it convinced me. Sorry, feed stock store in Salem, Missouri. You're going to lose about $50 a month in, in corn purchases. But, yeah, I, I'm done. That's uh, unfortunate. But. You know, folks, and someday, shoot, here's the deal. Here's the flip side of this coin. And I'm not saying it's going to happen. Please don't misquote me on this. But there is a prayer that we will find some vaccine or something someday. We don't have it yet at all. Do not mishear me. It's not even on the horizon right now. But it may be there's something we can orally give deer to halt or slow down CWD. And we may say, hey, you need to feed with this in your feed. As we learn more, we will change management strategies. The state of the science right now says otherwise. Looking at population modeling, you know, they, they show in Wyoming areas that could be void of deer. within It's stinked in our lifetime. Yeah. It's stinked. I want, I want this to sit in everyone's brain. It's stinked in our lifetime. No mule deer tags in parts of Wyoming in our lifetime. Because of CWD. Because of CWD. That would be true. Already hunter numbers and hunter tags available are way down due to CWD. Way, way down. Well, that uh, that brings up the question that we talk about in my circle of friends quite a bit, and I'll just ask you the same thing. If you find out you killed a CWD buck, are you going to eat it? I probably wouldn't. If I, I, I have our deer tested, as MDC requested here last year, we were standing in line down there at check station, not very long, just like everyone else, right? We killed some does, went down there. None of them come back positive. That's a huge blessing. But no, I probably wouldn't if it was known. But my family, we eat 20 or 30 deer a year. We basically don't buy any red meat. Again, I'm a kidney transplant patient. The Mayo Clinic tells me there's no healthier meat I'd put in my body than wild game because they're selective feeders, so they're getting all the mineral content versus a cow and a feed trough, just getting whatever the guy pours out there every day. That's just that simple. So we eat a lot of venison without hesitation. I love my daughters. Everyone that knows me knows I'm very family-oriented, and we eat venison all the time. And CWD has never been shown to jump to the human barrier. There was a, you know, a, a, a type of monkey research that got published early on, pre too early, in 2017. And they said, oh, they thought this monkey's pretty closely related to humans, they thought, and that they and, and they put pounds of infected venison in their gut. They, they the Monkeys didn't eat it. They had to force feed them because they, they injected it in their gut, literally. They tube fed them because they couldn't eat enough, literally. And they thought they saw it. But when you read, and I challenge everyone to go Google that now, and when you read the real published research, it didn't happen that way. Hmm. That's good. Yeah, I, I was under yeah. the impression. There is no evidence. Those that, are those macaw monkeys? Yes, yes. There's no evidence. And, and here's a, a, even a better study. Some guys out of Colorado, right, they've been dealing with CWD as long as anyone. They took the northern counties in Colorado where CWD is the highest prevalence rate, period, okay, of wild free ranging, not in a pen somewhere, and looked at all the resident landowners, or, I mean all the resident hunters, not non-state, but the resident hunters, and they're assuming that they're going to eat the elk or deer they kill, right? And there's no higher disease infection rate of humans there than anywhere in America. And this is the highest known CWD incident rates for large, for large area free ranging type herd. No evidence. And they had decades of data, not one or two years of data, decades of data. Another great study is a guy in Wisconsin had killed some deer, sent the samples off for the tests. But before he got the samples back, you can Google all this, folks. Dr. Google to the, to the rescue again. <laughs> he sent the samples off. But before he got there, his church was going to have a wild game dinner. And he said, oh, I got plenty of venison. And he fed a 100 and a couple people venison of deer that tested positive for CWD. Fed a 100 and some odd known names. The CDC has been following those people every year since then. No evidence any of them have any of those disorders. None. You took a shot at your Facebook Troll, I got to take a shot at Larry Dablemont. Do you know who Larry Dablemont is? I don't. Oh, my gosh. He's this writer from the Ozarks. and The misinformation this guy's been spreading, we've had to write letters to the editor to try to clean up some of the – he oh, just going on and on about people are dying from this. And 
you know, stop eating deer and oh, oh, it's horrible. Just, yeah. You know, and that's where some of these conspiracy theorists come up with this is just people the, that are spreading misinformation about it and, and getting it out. I mean, it's just, it's a shame that this is a critical issue. And the truth is the only thing we should rely on. And we should look at really good research and realize that research will change over time because we're going to learn more. Aldo Leopold, basically considered the father of conservation movement in North America, published in his great book, San County Almanac, that as he learned more, he changed his opinion a lot. He went from shooting woods and not shooting woods to blah, 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 you know. And if he was in Yellowstone right now, he might be back to shooting some woods because they're eating snot out of all the elk out there. You know, you change as the situation and the data changes. We watched the fierce green fire die in that wolf's eyes. Yeah. That was yeah, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, that's what the evolution of learning is, is, is adjusting your, your thought process as new information comes to light. It's unfortunate that we seem to live in a society where it's almost like you're looked down upon if you change your mind. Oh, so, well, we're so polarized. You were on this side or that side. And I really dislike that about Me the too. current state of our society and other things that, you know, we should learn and use the best information possible. And, and we know that CWD kills deer. We're not aware of any deer that had it in, you know, in a test facility or anything like that that survived it. Some survived a little bit longer because they're different genotype, but just a few months longer, not, you know, not like they're just going to save us. It's not like a deer breeder in a pen anywhere has some genetics. It's going to, they're going to let loose and really turn this around. That's absolutely not true. I hope it happens someday, but it's not true now. Well, Grant, I really appreciate the opportunity to come down here and talk with you today. I got to tell you, this place is just amazing. Uh, it was amazing the first time I came and to see it again and the improvements that you continue to make. It's, it truly is the proving grounds. You've proven what this Ozark landscape can be. Well, you know, it's a, it's been a great place to raise a family and to, to teach myself because, you know, stuff I brought here thought, boy, this would be easy and work didn't work in the proven grounds. And we had to figure out a different way to do it. And so, yeah, I've been blessed to to be part of this land for a while and someone else will have it some, you know, someday after I'm gone and hopefully they'll continue using it. We put, you know, most of this property in a conservation easement. So you're looking out there now, not seeing any houses. Well, you're never going to see houses out there because it's in a conservation easement. So folks, that's my testimony. That's great. And I'm right next to Branson. So we could sell for a whole lot more money if I hadn't have done that. Well, it's a beautiful piece of property. Thank you for making sure it's going to look like this for years to come. Yeah. Thanks for the update. Thanks for the work y'all do. Well, I appreciate that very much. And I got to pack up and we got to go to Bass Pro Shop. We're going to have a big party tonight at the White River Conference Center and introduce another 200 or so people to the Wonders of Wildlife Museum. So it's a great place. I love the Wonders of Wildlife. It's just hard to put into words how amazing you, that place is. My wife and I have been blessed enough to go through there several times. And I still see new stuff every time that I missed on a previous tour. Well, I hope I see you soon. Take Thanks care. a lot.